This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson skulle jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Yes, welcome everybody to a special bonus holiday or not edition of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. My name is Brian Com, and I'm joined today by a very special guest. He hosts another show on the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast Network. His name is Marcus Kalanen, and he hosts the Cuckupful Stat Attack. Marcus, say hi. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you here, Marcus. And Marcus is joining us for what is an episode that has been 10 years in the making. Yeah, you didn't think Keeping Carlson was going to sleep on all these very important and meaningful decade-end lists. This is going to be a very relevant list to your interests, I promise. We are going to be looking back at the decade that was in hockey and fantasy hockey, which is what we're all here for, right? So we're going to talk about some general storylines that have been happening over the last 10 years in hockey, different things and how hockey evolved, things that had an impact on fantasy hockey. You know, we might or might not be talking about certain equipment changes that were made and how those impacted the game. We're also going to make our all-decade list of fantasy hockey players. Marcus has compiled a list of the top 25 fantasy players of the decade. Goalies, defense, left wing, right wing, center. We've got them all in list form. It's going to be an amazing show. Marcus has been researching this for the last seven years. So you know it's (laughs) going to be a really fantastic show. Marcus, are you ready to get going? I am ready to rumble, Brian. Uh, Before we start, let's just say proudly presented by Dabra Hockey, who are also keeping the content coming over this slow time of year. Uh, We just had a few days without fantasy hockey. That didn't mean a few days without content from DabraHockey.com. So make sure you check them out as your source for all things fantasy. Okay, Marcus, where to begin? How about 2010? Uh, by talking about just some of the big things that happened that caught the whole hockey world's attention. And we can start right back in 2010, can't we? Yeah, 2010 Olympics in Vancouver. Um, In terms of moments of the decade in ice hockey, I don't think it gets any bigger than the overtime winner from Sid the Kid. Right, that's one of those moments where uh, we all remember where we were. But Marcus, you're, you're not Canadian, right? Nope. But this is, is this also a moment that's burned into your brain 
also? Absolutely. I remember exactly where I was. I was fast asleep in a hotel room in Vietnam. (laughs) And the following day, I woke up, checked the score, saw that Sid the Kid had scored the winner, was over the moon, and then got onto a bus filled with American and Canadian tourists who proceeded to spend the entire journey to wherever it was we were going, um, you know, chirping back and forth at each other. So it was a really unique and really interesting way to to celebrate that moment, I suppose. Okay, so now I see why it was memorable. Anything else notable stand out to you? Yeah, well, the 2014 Olympics um, probably wasn't as memorable as 2010, but I do remember um, one particular moment from the 2014 Olympics that I'll never forget. It was TJ Oshie in the shootout against the Russians, where I think he had to take, was it six shootout attempts? The the weird Olympic format for the uh, for the shootout meant that he had six attempts and he scored four. So he was the real hero of that shootout. Um, but apart from that, I mean, it was a memorable tournament for some, I'm sure. Not personally. Um, the 2018 Olympics then, if we move forward another four years, uh, there were obviously issues with the NHL after the uh, collective bargaining agreement, I think, uh, determined that there would be no NHL players at the Olympics in uh, Russia. Or sorry, in Pyeongchang. Um, and it was won by the Olympic athletes from Russia, who have now subsequently been banned from international competition because of drug breaches and so on. So um, it was a bit of a weird end to the decade in terms of the Olympic hockey. Super weird end. It's like, in my mind, that that hockey Olympic tournament barely even happened, right? Because we didn't mm. have NHLers, although there were storylines to to attach onto and to get interested in. But then the, that the winners were not even playing under the the flag of their country made the whole thing even more bizarro. Um, going back, uh, can you remember Marcus? You mentioned TJ Oshie's shootout success uh, when he did play when he got all those attempts. Do you remember who yeah. the goalie was that he was taking them against? No, I was trying to think earlier. Um, God, would it have been like, I don't know, was it Bobrovsky or something? It was Bobrovsky. Wow. Even when you you don't have the answers written down, you nail it. Yeah, it was Bobrovsky versus Jonathan Quick, uh, who yes. had stopped Ilya Kovalchuk two out of four times to give Oshi the chance to finish things off. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was crazy. It reminds me of the, uh, the Kane and Taves. I think that was in the World Juniors, though, when they were going back and forth against each other in these rules where players can get repeated attempts, which, I don't know, how would you feel about seeing that in the NHL? No, I like, I prefer the NHL format. I think it, as you know a what? unique storyline, it was, for a one-off uh, with Oshi, it was a, it was an interesting scenario, but I don't think I'd like it as a rule. You know what I'd prefer in the NHL? No shootouts. Yeah, yeah. No, sh- yeah. nobody gets any attempts ever because there are no more shootouts. Three on three overtime is the greatest thing to ever happen to the NHL, as far as I'm concerned. It is the most exciting ice hockey you will ever see. It's like wide open in the way that I think hockey was once upon a time when you had five on five and bodies were smaller and systems were looser. You could just move around more than you can with five guys on the ice now. And I think if you let players play three on three long enough, most games are going to be settled within 10 minutes, right? Like there's going to be a sloppy line change or a bad mistake. Like it doesn't even have to be skill. It just has to be the first team to make a mistake loses. And I still prefer that to the shootout. Absolutely. Maybe that's something that will come around in the next decade. Uh, let's hope. Uh, I will be lobbying all the people in hockey that I know, which is Elon, my co-host. Uh, so uh, we'll see what he can do about it. Next up, 
what else? Give me uh, give me a couple other big headlines from this past decade that we can uh, no- nostalgize over. <laughs> so one thing that really jumps out to me um, as a memory is the 2012-2013 half-season lockout, I suppose you could call it, the shortened season. Um, it was there was a real risk that that season was not going to go ahead at all. It was very much last minute. Okay, there were 48 regular season games played for each team, but I think it was either it was do or die at, at when it came around Christmas time into January. Um, but that was a that season was really unique as well because I don't think I've ever remembered a team dominating from start to finish both regular season and postseason as Chicago did that year. Um, so Tampa obviously did it last year in the regular season and then flopped in the playoffs. But Chicago just from from the get go were out to win that cup. What a weird decade that there were you know there were ten Stanley Cups awarded and only six teams won them. Do you what do you foresee for the next decade? So we had Chicago win three times, LA and Pittsburgh with two, Boston, Washington, St. Louis with one each, and St. Louis really just sneaking in there at the end of the decade as being like a team that we can all like. I guess Washington too was long awaiting a cup. Um, but wh- how do you foresee things shaking out next decade? Because this decade there was all this all this talk about uh, this is the the decade of dynasty. Now now any team can win two or three times in a short period of time, you got to load up for your window and try and become this dynastic force. What do you think? Is this a one-off or is this something that you could see happening again next decade? Uh, What's the over-under, Marcus? I'm asking you a bunch of questions, but maybe this is the best frame for it. Number of teams to win the Stanley Cup in the next decade. Yeah, I'm going to set the over-under at six. So Mm. that's how many teams won the Stanley Cup this past decade over or under for the next decade i'm i'm going over six i think i think it's pretty rare that a team is going to win three cups in six years as chicago did at the start of the decade um and then pittsburgh and la both winning two cups each it probably happens now and again but i think the next decade you'll probably see a bit more parity right right yeah i i think that's where i'm leaning to it seems more and more random like you can't just build a team and you look at the way that i mean la won by stifling other teams defensively in a way that I'm just not sure is possible anymore. And you also had the lockout shortened season that you mentioned uh, that I am so glad we're so far away from that now that we don't have to. I remember for like, cause we started keeping Carlson probably the year after the lockout shortened season. So every time we talked about a player's career history for the next three seasons of our show, we kept having to like throw in that little <laughs> audio asterisk that, oh yeah, that happened in the lockout shortened season. So we're not actually sure if that was a reliable sample or, or like something we could really count on. So I'm happy to have distance from that. And I hope we don't even get there again. Who are the best teams of the last decade? Like cups aside, because we all know the playoffs are all 50-50 coin flips and don't actually mean anything. Who are the best regular season teams? Yeah, this is a fantasy hockey podcast, so we only really care about the regular season. And after that, we switch off and go on our summer holidays to, you know, Mexico or somewhere sunny and the playoffs happen and we come back and we do our drafts. Um, the best teams of the decade, I suppose I'll start at the fifth best team, uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, I think, who equaled the most wins in an 82 game season last season and made the playoffs six times out of nine. Um, so I'm only really looking for the sake of uh, as a, a disclaimer here. I'm only only really looking from the 2010-2011 season on. I'm not counting the 29-2010 season because half of it didn't happen this decade. 
After that, then, we have St. Louis, who, this was one that really jumped out at me. Uh, obviously, I knew that they won the Cup last year, but I didn't realise just how strong they'd been in the decade in the regular season. They had four 100-point seasons, two 99-point seasons, and in the lockout season, they had a 102.5-point pace. Um, they made the playoffs seven out of nine seasons. Maybe I, maybe I don't follow the West as close as I follow the East. Um, I don't know. I, I, they really surprised me that they were as high up as they were. Uh, the team then above them was Boston, who had five 100-point seasons. Again, in the lockout season, they were on a 100-point pace, and they made the playoffs seven out of nine seasons, as did St. Louis. And then the top two teams of the regular season in this decade would have been Pittsburgh and Washington, in my opinion. Uh, Washington six division championships, made the playoffs eight out of nine seasons, and six 100-point seasons. So no real surprise there. They, they dominated. It's maybe a bit of a surprise and a bit of a shame that they only won one cup. Um, but it's it's really good that they did. All joking aside, obviously being a Pittsburgh fan, maybe it would have been funny to see them not win the cup. But Ovechkin deserves it, and a few other guys on that team, Backstrom, Carlson, Holtby, they deserve their cup. And then, in my humble opinion, the team of the decade, and I challenge anyone to argue this. I'm sure Dave Benton will probably agree. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are now on 13 consecutive playoff appearances, seven 100-point seasons, and a 100-point pace in the lockout season. And the only season that they didn't reach 100 points, they had 98. They've dominated the regular season. Yeah, the Penguins. And how frustrating is it to be Washington to make the playoffs eight of nine seasons in a decade, hit 100 points six times, win your division six times, and get knocked out by Pittsburgh what felt like seven times, right? Like, Mm. the Penguins just ended all of Washington's dreams all decade. And then what you mentioned about St. Louis and how, like, they surprised you as being a team of the decade, they did it very, very quietly. I don't Mm. think a lot of people remember their first half of the decade was actually really strong. Um, They had 109 points in 2011-2012. They were on probably about a 100-point pace, if I do the math quickly in my head, the next year in the lockout short season, and 111, 109, 107 points. The reason why none of us really realized this was they got knocked out in the first or second round three of those six seasons where they were really strong. Another reason is because they were coached by Ken Hitchcock. What happens on a team with Ken Hitchcock is that your leading scorer on your 109-point team, division-winning team, has 54 points, and his name is David Backus. Uh, 54 <laughs> points in 82 games. TJ Oshie also tied with Backus with 54 points. Petrangelo and Shattenkirk as the next leading scorers. You look at the lockout short year, same story. Leading scorer Chris Stewart with 36 points in 48 games. That's awful. <laughs> Followed by David Backus and Alex Steen. I mean, in all these years that the Blues had great team seasons, it was really dry until, like, fantasy wise, especially yeah. until you had Vladimir Tarasenko come along and start doing his thing. 19 points in 38 games as a 21 year old in the lockout shortened season. Then the next year, he played 64 games at 43 points. And then by 14-15, he finally made his mark, picking up 73 points in 77 games and pretty much leading the Blues in scoring every year after that. So that's the reason why St. Louis did it quietly. They did it in a boring way with no point scores. And it's not like you ever, like everyone wanted Shattenkirk on their fantasy teams, but nobody wanted anyone else. Unless I guess you were in a Pims League and then you were happy to go get David Backus. So these are all teams 
teams that had really fantastic regular seasons with some really fantastic fantasy assets. But there are some teams this decade who have been like fantasy anathema. Like, please do not even venture out owning players on this team. Or do, I guess there was a question about whether you wanted to own players on these teams because they were so bad. So let's look at the worst teams of this past decade and see if there were any fantasy gems on them. Yeah, it's probably no surprise that the the only three teams who are under 500 record this decade are Buffalo, Edmonton and Arizona, um, aka Phoenix. You probably have a few players who are rosterable over the decade. I mean, obviously McDavid and Dreisaitl are cutting it up in fantasy terms this season and for the past couple of seasons. Arizona, I mean, you've got OEL, now you've got uh, Taylor Hall there, but for the most part of the decade, you probably wouldn't have touched most of their forwards in only maybe the deepest formats. Edmonton is still a team. It's like you have McDavid, you have Dreisaitl, now you can have Clefbaum, and uh, otherwise... You're in trouble. What I'm doing right now is I'm just loading up the leading scores from the worst seasons of the decade for each of these teams. I don't know how you could prove this to me, but if you can name the Buffalo Sabres leading scorer in 2013-14, I will let you host an entire episode of Keeping Carlson. This was the decade where we finally... uh, like. Analytics was obviously a big breakthrough thing. And analytics, I'm using that term, the way it's been evolved to use is being like, oh, numbers in hockey. But really, just different things started being tracked. More data available just meant you could draw more conclusions about what's happening on the ice. People were tracking shot attempts, zone entries, zone exits, uh, where players started their shifts, and trying to make sense of all these factors and how they work towards a player's or team's success. And you look at Buffalo, and pretty much all decade long, they were breaking these charts. Like, they were so bad. They either had to be left off the charts, or the scale of the charts had to be so skewed that they were just all alone in, like, the bottom left corner of whatever you were measuring. Usually shot attempt share. So they they are the chart breakers of the decade, and not for good reason. Uh, And now you've had plenty of time to think about who the leading scorer was in 13-14 in Buffalo, Uh, The leading scorer in Buffalo was Cody Hodgson with 44 (laughs) points in 72 games as a 23-year-old, averaging 18 minutes a night behind him. Tyler Ennis, Drew Stafford, Christian Ehrhoff. Buffalo had four players who had more than 30 points that season. That's it. Every other Sabre had less than 30. Matt Molson would have had more than 30 had he not missed half the season. Uh, And that really is the state of affairs in Buffalo in the early to middle portion of the decade. The Oilers, fortunately, at least always had Everly, Nugent Hopkins, Taylor Hall. But then, of course, uh, fantasy value took a dive generally shortly after that. Uh, Alice Hemsky was nearing the end of his career. Unfortunately, one of my fantasy favorites of probably the prior decade. Then in the desert, Oliver ekman Larson leading the Coyotes in scoring in these rough days, followed by Sam Gagnier, and then Keith Yandel, Shane Doan, Antoine Vermette. These were some thin teams still to come. Uh, we're going to take a look at some of the changes in the game. Then we're going to look forward to the next decade, and then we will cap off the show with our best fantasy players of the decade. Let's give two or three of the biggest changes that happened in hockey that might have, and we'll talk about their impact on fantasy hockey and scoring. What do you have it as one of them, Marcus? I suppose the biggest thing that happened in the last decade in terms of fantasy 
hockey would be it's it's a really strange one and it's kind of a theory that i have but i'm not sure if the evidence backs me up i think it does so i'll let you decide and maybe let the listeners decide so on the 4th of february 2018 so last year the change in goalie pant size had a huge impact on the goal scoring. This is probably something that not many people are aware of. The, you know, the regulations when I change my pant size, no, nobody ever talks about it. It's better <laughs> that's that the, way. That's the way it should be. But so what happened was <laughs> the the rules on goaltender pant size were changed and the the dimensions of the pants were changed in proportion to the goaltender. So it's not a kind of a one size fits all type thing. It's it's something where the you know taller goaltenders will be allowed more leeway with the with the size of their pants but this made a, a huge change almost an instant change in the number of goals that are being scored in the NHL so in November December and January before this change there were on average about 5.5 goals being scored in NHL games this is in 60 minutes so not including overtime this jumped immediately after the rules changed to 5.8 goals in February and has continued on that path pretty much the whole way since. So of the 2,200 games played since the rule change, the average goals per game, including overtime, is 6.04. In the 2,200 games before the rule change, the average goals were 5.65 per game. So it's almost a half a goal per game extra. And obviously there's huge implications on fantasy sports uh, when the when the scoring changes fundamentally within a league. In hockey, it's, it's no different. So for every game you play, you have an extra half a goal, you have an extra maybe 0.75 of an assist. Um, shooting percentage has gone up as well, so that's something to consider. I spoke about it on the Stat Attack Deep Dive that the save percentage of, of uh, the average goaltender in the NHL has gone down from 91% to 90.5. Shutouts are down, so for every 13 games played in the first season this decade, you would have a shootout, and now in every 22 games played, you have a shutout, so they're becoming far less frequent. Um, and there are more players then consequently hitting the 100 point club. So I think this season so far, we're looking at roughly 10 or 11 off the top of my head players who are currently pacing for a 100 point season. And then there are two more on a 99 point pace. Um, so, you know, it, it used to be a rarity at the start of the decade where a player would hit the 100 point club and it would be something that was, you know, rightly celebrated. But I think now it's more and more frequent. Um, so you're not really comparing like with the like uh, at this stage of the decade with the earlier part of the decade. And then one other point I think that's quite important to bear in mind, even though the scoring has gone up, the penalty minutes and the power play opportunities have actually decreased. So in 2005-2006, if we go back a little bit further than the last decade, you would have seen 16 penalty minutes per team game. Uh, in 2010-2011, this was at 12.26, so it had dropped already by the start of the decade, and it's now down to 8.3 penalty minutes per game uh, last season. Major penalties are down from th- uh, sorry half a penalty per game to just under one-fifth of a penalty. Misconducts are halved, and power play goals per team game have gone down from 2.07 in the post-lockout season 05-06 to 1.15 last season. And that's down from 1.28 at the start of this decade. So penalty minutes in general are down, but scoring is up, which doesn't really... It's not an intuitive thing that you would think. So that is what led me to believe that the change in goaltender pants size is what has increased the scoring in the NHL. So I have a thought and then a question about that. My, sure. my thought on the goalie pants size is one of the reasons that... 
goaltenders were resistant to the change and that it took so long to have was there were injury concerns. So I, I haven't done this research and I wonder if any listener wants to and pass along their fruits of their labor. We'll show Jared on the show. I wonder how goalie games lost to injury has changed with the change in equipment. Uh, I also wonder if there's some goalies whose careers have like really just been like they knew how to use their pants. So uh, and that made them like lose their edge. Like that was, you know, like Mike Smith apparently knows how to handle the puck. Joe Schmo, goaltending prospect, really knew how to position his pants. And then his whole career was sidelined because of uh, of this equipment change. So that's my that's my thought. My question, Marcus, is you're detailing this increase in goals scored over like the latter half of the decade is this linear? Like, do you think that this is just going to keep going up? Or uh, like, at what point do you guess we're going to see this plateau? I think it has pretty much plateaued, uh, assuming there are no further major rule changes which will impact it in the next couple of seasons. I think there was a huge jump, as I mentioned, February 4th, 2018. You can pretty much see that date as the uh, the, the turning point for goal scored in the NHL. It uh, steadily increased. It actually dropped off a little bit again, and it's it's more or less plateaued. You know, you need you need a good sample size to get this average. Um, so you're looking at maybe over the course of a half a season to a season. Um, this season we're at six goals per game, which is I think would be one of the highest since the early decade. So sorry, since the early century. And I think that's pretty much where it's going to stay, assuming no other rule changes. And I, I think you're actually dead right that the the goaltenders were right to kick up a fuss about the the rule changes regarding their uniform and their equipment, because it was a genuine injury concern. And I know a number of the goaltenders opposed it and spoke out about it. And it would be really interesting. And maybe that's something I'll have a look at for the deep dive. That's great. I would be so interested to hear that on a future episode of Kickupful Stat Attack, which, by the way. Uh, for anyone listening, I'll mention again, Marcus Kalanen is the host of, and that's basically a, a show, it's a podcast about the cacupful, uh breaking down uh, the little statistical uh, tidbits that you need to know about the top performers in our scoring format each week and changes in the standings. Like Marcus coordinates this entire spreadsheet of all 250 plus cacupful teams and uh, and ranks them all, has some really great info and interviews uh, people who play in the cupful too. You get to know a listener. Anyway, check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash stat attack. Going back to your point about scoring, and I might be setting you up here, but did you posit that there were more 100-point scores this decade than last decade or just over the last couple of years? Um, I haven't gone back too far past this decade, but I can certainly see that the increase has gone, and I actually did mention this on the stat attack Um that gradually over the past few seasons there have been more and more 100 point scorers and even if you look further down 90 point scorers 80 point scorers obviously with goals going up the number of players in the league hasn't really changed it's fairly static so you see that those goals have to go somewhere somebody has to score them i was looking back at all the 100 point scorers from the last decade from the 2000 season to to 2009 2010 and uh, there were 28 100 point seasons Uh, this decade there have been 14 only. However, nine of those have happened in the last two seasons. So if we're averaging four or five hundred point players per year, then we would be on pace to to beat the number of hundred point performances last decade. Yeah, and I think we look like we're we're probably going to beat that this season again. Um, And if you look at the point 
paces as well you'd probably get quite a few more players who are on a 100 point pace not just hitting a 100 point season but actually pacing for it and maybe they missed a few games through injury which also makes you wonder like should we celebrate the achievement of everyone on a 100 point pace or like is it a real extra feather in your cap to get 100 points and stay healthy for all 82 games i feel like it's the latter or at least to stay healthy in enough games to score 100 points but of course i don't want to penalize players just because they're injured speaking of penalties uh marcus you said that penalty minutes went down this decade is that right yeah so pretty much across the board every type of penalty has dropped um so you're looking at uh minor penalties are down from 3.9 penalties per game to 3.3 major penalties are down obviously fighting is is down significantly they're down from 0.55 per game to 0.18 so that's a huge drop uh misconducts are down game misconducts are down pretty much across the board every type of penalty is down the overall trend is that penalty minutes are down from about 12.25 per game in 2010 to 8.5 per game in the current season. Marcus, let's shift our focus before we get to our top fantasy performers of the decade. Let's shift our focus to next decade. Who are some names you're watching of players? You know, if you're starting a keeper league now or like a decade league, oh, that would be fun. And you said, okay, let's count fantasy points for the next 10 years or like head-to-head matchups for 10 consecutive years. What young players do you think are going to have productive output not a couple years into the decade or not just up until, uh, you know, 2027 or whatever, but from start to finish, right from 2020 all the way through to 2030? I have a list of eight players here who are still aged under 21 as we speak. Interestingly, and it's something that has been talked about on your, your show and on other shows and in print, the rise of the defenseman and the point scoring defenseman in the last couple of seasons is is really incredible. So you got the likes of Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarr battling it out for the Calder this year. Uh, Rasmus Dahlin, people forget he's still only 19 years old. Um, Miro Heiskanen in Dallas, 20 years old. And then in the forwards, you've got talent like Andrei Svechnikov, who's uh, scoring those crazy goals, whatever you want to call them. I know people kind of argue over what you call those goals from behind the goal. You got Brady Kachuk, you got uh, Elias Patterson, Patrick Laine is still only 21, feels like he's been around a lot longer than he has been. Um, these are just some of the names who are going to light it up. And then obviously you have players coming through who we haven't seen at the NHL level, um, but watching the World Juniors in the last couple of days, you've got plenty of talent on those sides. So uh, it's an exciting decade. And as we mentioned earlier, fighting is down, penalties are down. So hopefully these players will be given uh, an ice hockey environment where they're allowed to thrive and you know not fear you know, crazy hits to the head or anything like that. Um, and they'd be allowed to play full seasons and reach the reach the peak of their powers. It's so nice to see some wide open hockey and to see so many of these names, Hughes, Makar, Darlene, Haskinen, all being puck movers from the back end. It's really fun because offense really does, like the best offense is going to start with a really great breakout pass or a really great zone exit and then followed by a really great zone entry. And it's nice to see that there are uh, some super talented and keen and creative blue liners who can lead the charge in creating some of the best offense of the decade to come. Uh, Anything else you're looking at before we get into our all-decade fantasy team? Um, One other story, if I can, Brian, uh, to watch over the next few years, and people are already talking about it, um, is Alexander Ovechkin's chase of Wayne Gretzky's goal-scoring record. 
Now, it may or may not be a bit of a stretch to say that he's going to catch him. He's 213 goals behind at present, I think. Um, he has a few players in his sights, though. So he's currently 12th in the all-time goal-scoring rankings. Um, he has a few players who he could realistically catch, if not this season, definitely in the next two seasons. So he's three goals behind Timu Solani, nine goals behind Mario Lemieux, 11 goals behind Steve Iserman, 13 goals behind Messier. I mean, he could catch each of those this season um, and move himself up to eighth in the all-time scoring record. And then, you know, who's to say he's not going to catch? He's 85 goals behind Yarmir Jager, who's third in the overall standings. So a couple more Ovechkin seasons and he has Jager in his sights. You're talking another 120 or so, 130 maybe, goals after catching Jager to catch Gretzky. So he'd want to be playing till you know, 40 at least to, to catch that. But, you know, this guy just doesn't get injured. Um, he he constantly shoots the puck. He Like, I'll talk about it later, but his shooting of the puck is unparalleled. He he takes more shots than anybody in the league, I think, probably ever. Um, and I don't think it's impossible that he could catch Gretzky. It's definitely something to watch, though. And I'd be really interested to know where he's going to end up in that overall goal scorer ranking by the end of his career. You know, not enough gets made of how Iron Ovechkin has been, right? And keep in mind, he missed his whole age 19 season because that mm. would have been, like, his rookie season ended up being a lockout year. Yep. So he's a year behind. And then, of course, as a rookie, he scored 52 goals. So it's, it's like, it's unfair. He just lost a year of productivity, probably 50 goals. And then another half a season through the second lockout. That's a season and a half of, you know, a 50-goal scorer. That's 75 goals. He could realistically be possible third or fourth in the list now had he not lost those games yeah totally unfair to Ovi uh, especially because he has kept himself so healthy all these years I don't know how someone who's got to be a target constantly for other teams players uh, has only missed more than four games once in his entire now 15 year career he played 72 games in 2009-2010 uh, scored 109 points anyway 50 goal season again for him uh, outside of that he's played at least 78 games every single year Alex freaking Ovechkin like this yep. guy does it all oh and by the way the year that he did miss the most games of his career he missed 10 games still finished tied for second in league scoring with Sidney Crosby 109 points and Crosby played 81 and he finished third in the goal scoring race with 50 goals just a single goal behind each Crosby and Stamkos yeah Russian machine never breaks insane whatever he's got i want it i wonder marcus if he's going to show up on our list of the top 25 fantasy players of the decade we've got five for each position that's what we're doing now from now till the rest of the show so marcus how about you get us started what position are we going to start at um, we're going to start with goaltenders, and I rank goaltenders a little bit differently than skaters. So I'll just explain what this is based on. Um, obviously, this is a fantasy hockey show, so I wanted to keep it as close to what people listening to the show will understand. So I based this on the cupful scoring format. So I've ranked uh, for skaters, I rank goals, assists, shorthanded points, shots on goals, hits and blocks. 
And then for goaltenders, who I'm about to speak about, I've ranked wins, saves, goals against, and shutouts. But for goaltenders, uh, when I when I did this, um, I was looking at the average points per game, and it just didn't look right to me. So with goaltenders, I've actually gone on total points throughout the decade, which does rule out a couple of really good goaltenders. So a disclaimer, don't at me here. Um, I'm only going by total points. This is all very scientific. It's not my opinion. So with that in mind, I will start with number five in the goaltenders, uh, which is Sergei Bobrovsky. Bobrovsky, as we mentioned earlier, uh, was part of the Russian team at the 2014 Olympics. He's played for Philadelphia, Columbus and Florida this decade. He's won two Vesnas, 268 wins, a 918 save percentage across the decade, 2.5 goals against average. And in terms of fantasy points in the Cupful, he averages around 5.83 per game this decade. At number four, then, Marc-Andre Fleury, who won two Cups with Pittsburgh and almost took Vegas to a Cup in their first season. Uh, 305 wins, which is the most of any goaltender since the start of the 2010-2011 season. Obviously, being a part of the strong Pittsburgh team helped him there. He won two Stanley Cups with the Penguins, four-time All-Star, a 917 save percentage, 2.42 goals against average, and an average of 5.69 fantasy points per game. Um, I'll go to number three then, Brian, and we can maybe discuss the three that we've spoken about then. Pecorine of the Nashville Predators, who had 292 wins. Uh, 919 save percentage, 2.38 goals against average, which is the lowest of the five goaltenders I'm going to speak about. He had a Vesna in 2018 and was four-time finalist for that particular award and averages 5.77 fantasy points per game. So any thoughts on those guys, Brian? Uh, you know, I will mention Sergei Bobrovsky. Philadelphia, I always just love to remind people, and maybe they, they don't want to be reminded anymore, but Sergei Bobrovsky was the goalie that Philly had been looking for for so long. If anybody remembers the years before uh, Bobrovsky came along, Philadelphia had a competitive team, but they just couldn't sort out their goaltending situation. They had Robert Esch, Antero Nidamaki, Martin Biron, uh, Ray Emery, Brian Boucher, like all these randoms. And some of those guys were active with Philly um, on the other side of Sergei Bobrovsky. But he was the goalie Philly needed. He was drafted by the organization and uh, they didn't hang on to him, which it, it just blew my mind. They gave up on him so quickly. Like, yeah, he didn't have the greatest time in Philly. He had a 9.09 save percentage over 77 starts. But uh, he was a young guy at the time. Way to go, Philadelphia, from moving on from one of the best goalies in your franchise of the last 20 years and not holding on to him. Thank goodness Carter Hart has come along and will hopefully help you forget about that. And maybe you'll maybe have just learned from your mistakes. Uh, we should also mention, since you're quoting Kakupful points, Marcus, if you if you mentioned I missed it, um, but four goalies, we give two points for a win, zero decimal three, five points for a save, negative two for a goal against, and two points for a shutout. So essentially, if you're a goalie in the Kakupful, it's good to play a lot, it's good to face a lot of shots, and you still need to have like a respectable save percentage like somewhere around 9 10 and you can stay pretty clear otherwise you're ending up in the negative points and that's what these guys have done Bobrovsky, Fleury and Rene have all been workhorses for their respective teams for a long long time uh, for the better part of the decade and they all had fantastic save percentages throughout so uh, that's why they're on this list I'm actually you know if you asked me to name the other two guys who take the top two spots in goalies these names would have been the ones that popped to mind and that actually shows 
how there has been sort of a shift towards the end of the decade on these top two goalies that you have on on your list according to Kakup Full Points. Why don't you read them to us? Yeah, so number two is Carey Price. He peaked around the middle of the decade, I would say, winning the Vezina in 2015 and the Hart Trophy. Uh, he was the first goaltender to win the Hart Trophy since Jose Theodore in 2001-2002. Um, he also won the Ted Lindsay that year. In, across the decade, then, he has 277 wins. He has a 919 save percentage, 2.42 goals against average, and 3,093 fantasy points, which is equivalent to around 5.95 fantasy points per game. Yeah, so, I mean, he's still obviously fantasy relevant. Uh, he's he's still a quality goaltender. He probably has seen his best days pass, um, but across the decade, 10 years of production with Montreal, he has been outstanding. Absolutely. Uh, and it's nice to see, like, he's a 906 this year, which isn't fantastic. Um, but he isn't, he had a 918 last year, which was a nice bounce back for Carey Price. And he's been up and down. And I can't help but think that injuries did play a part in some of this, right? There was the 2015 16 season where Price only got to play in 12 games. Uh, he was 10 and 2 with a 934 save percentage in those 12 games, uh, but missed the whole rest of the season. Uh, the next year came back was a 923. So, like, he wasn't immediately affected, which makes this all like a, a tough narrative to believe, but there's no other way to explain in my mind, a 925 goalie going to become a 900 goalie two seasons later after an injury. And then, uh, and then having, you know, 918 bounce back the 906 so far this year, it's been a rocky road for Kerry Price. And he's not the no doubt, like lockdown fantasy asset that he once was, which is unfortunate and a shame, but you just don't get that in today's NHL anymore. So I feel like he was one of the very last goalies who you could really depend on from start to finish in a season. The number one guy, I guess, is probably in the same bracket. He won the Vezina in 2012. He has six MVP awards for his team. He has a 919 save percentage. He has the most saves, so he's an absolute workhorse. Uh, He's the most saves in the NHL since 2010-2011. He has the most assists, unusually. Um, I guess that's a product of playing a lot of games. And he averages 5.9 fantasy points per game in the Cupful format. And that is Henrik Lundqvist of the New York Rangers. Um, A guy for many, many years who you could hang your hat on. He has probably maybe lost the job a little bit this season. I think he has it back now. I think he's had a couple of consecutive starts. Uh, Georgiev was pushing him. New York aren't up to a whole lot this year, but... um, over the course of a decade, I don't think anybody has really matched his level of production and his just his ability to play, you know, 60, 65 games and produce for each one of those games. Yeah, and this sort of ties back into the discussion we were having about scoring and how goals have increased towards the latter half of the decade. And it just is harder to be a really good goalie in the NHL these days, especially if you're 37 years old, which is what Lundqvist is. And yet this year so far, he has a save percentage that is right around league average at 9-11, which is great for him. Way to go. And we saw his last really dominant season come back in 2015-16 when he was a 33-year-old. For contrast, this season, Carey Price is 32, and we've already seen three seasons of like, eh, is he okay or isn't he okay? So it really gives you a sense of just how incredible Lungvis's longevity has been. And also to Lungvis's credit, even after his save percentage fell off from the 920s back as a 33-year-old now five seasons ago, 
he still maintained a really strong quality start percentage. Over 55% of his starts have been quality. It just says something that this guy's still going out and more often than not giving you a quality start, more often than league average giving you a quality start. So way to go, Henrik Lundqvist. I can't wait to see what you do over the next 10 years. Yeah, and can I just give a few honourable mentions then to guys who probably would have made the list if they had been around a little bit longer. Um, they are Frederick Anderson, uh, Braden Holpe, Andre Vasilevsky and Connor Hellebuck. Um, guys who would have produced at maybe Lundqvist or Price levels over the last few seasons, but not quite long enough this decade um, to have made that list. Okay, the defenseman. So uh, in the Cupful, uh, our skater point weightings are you get four and a half points for a goal, three points for an assist, half a point for a shot on goal, a quarter point for a hit, half point for a block, and one bonus point for a short handy. Who are the top scoring fantasy defensemen of the decade? Okay, so number five on the defenseman for the team of the decade is Shea Weber. He played with Nashville and Montreal, moving to the Canadians in 2016. He averages 5.1 fantasy points per game played in the couple format. He had 150 goals, which is second among D-men. He has an 8.5% shooting percentage, which really stuck out to me. Uh, it's very, very high for a defenseman from over 1,700 shots, which makes him the best percentage shooting percentage in the league among D-men. He has a plus minus of 72. I know plus minus isn't very indicative of a player's value over a smaller sample size, but I think over the course of a decade, it is something that's worth looking at. Um, you will generally see the best players get to the top of that particular uh, attribute. And... For Shea Weber, he has 1.5 fantasy points per game from peripherals alone, so peripherals being hits and blocks, and he's second only to Alexander Edler in the top 50 defensemen in that particular uh, side of fantasy, um, which makes him extremely valuable. You know, if he doesn't get a point in a game, he's probably going to get you a couple of hits and a couple of blocks. I'll just jump in on Shea Weber quickly. Like, one really exciting thing about him is that since moving to Montreal, he's played fewer minutes, but he's been more effective in those minutes. So you wonder if he was just working a little too hard in Nashville to be his most effective, or if Montreal is asking him to do things a little bit differently, uh, because he's now been in Montreal at age 32, uh, 33, and 34, and age 31, excuse me, but 32 was kind of a lost season uh, because of injuries. Uh, But he has shown some offensive production and involvement that he had never really shown before. And if he had shown it, it was at the front end of his career. So it's really amazing to see this resurgence from him to really finish the decade strong. Yeah, I agree. Um, he's a he's a must own in all fantasy formats still, um, which is an achievement for a D man of his age. Um, the next player that we're going to talk about then is somebody who probably is of a similar age, if I'm not wrong. He actually is sitting out this season. Uh, I, I haven't heard any developments. It's Dustin Bufflin. Um, he yeah. So before this season, uh, he he dropped out. Uh, I don't know the full details of what happened. I don't think anybody really does. But up until this point, he had averaged 5.12 fantasy points per game in the Cupful. He uh, has 416 points in 609 games in the decade. And he averages over two hits a game or 5.5 hits per 60 minutes. Um, so it's unfortunate that he isn't here this season. I know a lot of people in the Cupful drafted him and sat on him for a while, hoping that he would come back. And I don't think he's owned in any of the Cupful divisions at this stage. And it looks pretty much unlikely that he's going to be back this season. 
I think we all thought that this like turn of the calendar might be a moment, like a reset moment for him to consider coming back. I guess the all-star break is also coming up, but it's been interesting that there's been real radio silence around him, which either means that absolutely nothing has changed from whatever did happen over the course of training camp, uh, or there is something happening, but everyone's being really successfully tight-lipped about it. I would guess it's the former. So uh, if you're looking to add one of the best defensemen of the decade to your fantasy team, wouldn't go jump in the gun. No, me neither. Uh, at number three, then, we have Brent Burns, who is currently with the San Jose Sharks, but you may have remembered or forgotten that he was with Minnesota for a period at the start of the decade. Um, so Burns averages, as I said, 5.3 fantasy points per game. He has 165 goals, which is the most of any D-man this decade, and 2,347 shots, which leads the league for D-man. So shoots and scores quite a lot. He's pretty much the Alexander Ovechkin of D-man, and there's not a whole lot more to it. Uh, the Alex Ovechkin of D-Men is great. And now also we need to acknowledge the lost right wing status of both Brent Burns and Dustin Bufflin that just made them fun to own, right? Like you never yeah. would put them in that right wing position. And I would, I don't remember how long they had that status after they both stopped taking shifts at right wing also. Uh, that was sort of the fun part of it. There's no dual eligible defenseman anymore. So uh, let's tip our hats to the decade of dual eligible defensemen <laughs> finally coming to a close. Yeah, maybe they'll come back in the next 10 years. Who knows what the league will look like in 10 years? I'd love that. At number two, then, is Chris Letang of the Pittsburgh Penguins, um, marginally higher than Brent Burns at 5.32 points per game. Um, he has missed significant time through injury and hasn't played a full season since the first season of the decade, 2010-2011. Um, but he is second in points per game. And when he, he is healthy, which isn't always, he is definitely... A top five defenseman, I would say, in the league. And that's the that's the sad bit about Chris Letang. He just can't stay healthy, which I think in some people's minds might be reason to exclude him from this list. Just based on, he's like the anti-Ovi, right? He's so good, but uh, he actually played most of the games in his first four seasons in the league, uh, actually in his rookie year. I'm not sure if he missed these games due to injury. I'm just looking at his box scores, uh, like the, the season history here. Uh, I don't remember. He missed 19 games. I don't know if that was just because he was playing elsewhere or not. Um, but he played 74, 73, 82 games in his first three full seasons in the league. And ever since then, has struggled to stay healthy. But as I've reminded everyone on our audio almanac the last couple of years, and I'm touching wood as I say this, he's been remarkably healthy for being Chris Letang over the last little while. So now he's 32. He played 79 games two years ago, 65 games last year. So far, he's missed about 10 this year. Hopefully that's all. And moving on then to the number one defenseman, I guess you don't have to look too far. The name of this podcast tells you who it is. Yes. Um, it, it's Eric Carlson of now the San Jose Sharks, but for the most part of the decade was with the Ottawa Senators. Moving in the 2018-2019 season, um, averages 5.34 fantasy points per game. So it actually was really tight between Carlson, uh, Latang, and Burns. They were all more or less on the same totals. Um, Carlson, he's had a couple of injury concerns in the last couple of seasons, but... 
655 games played, 563 points, which is number one among D-men in the decade, 436 assists, which is also number one among D-men, and he is second uh, amongst D-men in power play points with 212, which is just behind Keith Yandel on 219. So, yeah, Carlson has been uh, a staple uh, for the entire decade. And now's the part where I acknowledge Elon and I's little secret in creating our cacuffle scoring settings was that they were essentially rigged to provide <laughs> Eric Carlson with the means to rank first and to make us look just really smart for naming our podcast after him. But I mean, the most amazing thing about Eric Carlson being number one on this list is like you named, let's go back to number five, Shea Weber, twilight of his career. Dustin Bufflin, career might be over. Brent Burns, we're seeing some huge regression from him this year. Chris Letang, can't stay healthy, uh, but also like over 30. Eric Carlson, still a young, sprightly 29-year-old. Like he started the decade as a 20-year-old, significantly younger than any of these other guys uh, that we've talked about so far. So uh, I think that's all the more amazing that Eric Carlson started in his early 20s as a defenseman, which is a notoriously difficult time and place to produce, uh, and was able to work his way all the way up to being our number one fantasy hockey defenseman of the decade. Yeah, I agree. He was... uh... He was a, a brilliant first choice. He was he deserves to be there. Um, as I said, number one among D men in points, assists, and second amongst uh, D men in power play points. Um, so he's right at the top of all of those categories. Um, a few honourable mentions as well then for D men, um, guys who didn't make the list but weren't far off: uh, Roman Yossi, uh, Mark Giordano, John Carlson, who's having the season of his life, uh, Alex Edler, who's I mentioned earlier, peripherals god. Uh, and Victor Hedman of Tampa Bay, who uh, has been steady for the last few years and is generally one of the first D-men drafted. So way to go, Eric Carlson. End of show, end of podcast. <laughs> Not quite. We have to move on to the right wingers. And okay. at number five in right wing is Vladimir Tarasenko. We mentioned him earlier. Um, he averages 5.15 fantasy points per game. Uh, which, if you compare it, I suppose, to Eric Carlson, who was the number one D-man at 5.34. It's not too far off. Uh, he Tarasenko had 214 goals, 214 assists. So he has a nice spread of goals and assists, 50-50, um, in 507 games, uh, which works out at just under a five points every six games, let's say, 0.84 points per game. And he actually has more overtime goals than any other right winger in the league, which I found was an interesting stat. That is an interesting stat. I wonder if that has anything to do with Ken Hitchcock hockey. Like why, or like just that he's had more opportunities to go to overtime and that St. Louis loves to just shut it down and maybe play for the single point. Uh, That would be an interesting thing to dive a little more deeply into. But Tarasenko, you can set your watch to 75 points from him. I know Elon always wants to set his watch to 80 or 85 points from Tarasenko. I feel confident that it's not going to happen at this stage, as I felt confident about for the last few years. But, uh, you know, you can't underrate the reliability and certainty that you have in Vladimir Tarasenko on your roster. Very sad this year that he's been injured. I hope he's back in time to rescue some of his owners who've still managed to make the fantasy playoffs without him. Yeah, it's very unfortunate that he's missed um, and will miss the majority of the season. Um, Hopefully he's young enough to recover from the injury and and get a few seasons uh, of high-quality production. 
At number four, then, if we can move on to Blake Wheeler, who also was mentioned earlier, uh, 5.18 fantasy points per game, which is, uh, sorry, he is second amongst games played among right wings this decade, just behind Phil Kessel. Um, 641 points in 732 games. 732 games is a pretty huge total uh, of games played in the decade when you consider there was a lockout uh, in 2012, 2013. Blake Wheeler, interestingly, is king of the empty net. He has 21 empty net goals and 25 empty net assists, which is 46 points from empty nets alone, which leads the league in the decade. Um, he also, in 2017-2018, led the league in assists with 68. Blake Wheeler was long unsung as a fantasy asset. Like, no one thought... Anytime he had a good season, it was like, okay, I guess that's all right. And then when he had a really good season, it was like, oh, can he... Do it again, though. I I don't know. He's just Blake Wheeler, whoever that is. Clearly made a name for himself by now. Like you mentioned, 641 points in 732 games is fantastic. I don't know if you want to ding him for those empty net points or not. No, no, I just found it a a weird statistical anomaly. I mean, somebody has to have the most empty net points. It just happens to be him. Okay, who's number three? Number three is David Pasternak, who joined us in the NHL around the middle of the decade. Uh, He averages 5.39 fantasy points per game. He has 334 points in 356 games, so he's just shy of a point a game, uh, 0.94 points per game. He has a 14.8% shooting percentage, which is pretty elite, I would say. He won the 2019 shooting accuracy contest at the All-Star game. Um, So he is one of those kind of new generation of players, a bit like Austin Matthews, who just have an incredible release. Um, And... His owners this season will be absolutely delighted that they picked him up in the draft because he is on fire. Him, Dreisaitl and McDavid are, are running away with the, the scoring title. Usually in your stat attack document, like you always list percent ownership of every Kukupful player. Obviously, all these guys are 100%. Did you ever put together a Kukupful ADP? Yeah, yes, I did, yeah. I wonder if I speak long enough, if you could pull it up. I can tell everybody that in my Kukupful division, David Pasternak was drafted by Short Shifts host Lewis, 8th overall in my division behind Brad Marchand, Patrick Kane, Brent Burns, Nathan McKinnon, Ovechkin, Kucherov, McDavid. And I feel like it's tricky because that's like where he belonged at the time. And even now it's like, ah, yeah, I'd rather have him than Brent Burns. The idea about Pasternak is he's now in this sphere of guys who you're okay with if they end up being your first round pick, right? There's always a point where the first round drops off into becoming guys that like, you know, you're losing some value in picking up because they're just so far from the McDavid and Kucherov and Ovechkin and McKinnon from the start. But David Pasternak making a legit case to be included in that top tier of first round talent that like, especially if you're in a snake draft, you're like, oh, okay, if I can grab Pasternak eighth overall and get my next pick Again, in like eight more picks, that's actually a pretty good deal rather than getting uh, McDavid first and then getting my next pick 16 picks later. Pasternak providing great value for anyone who's able to draft him from the eight spot. Marcus, have you found the ADP data for the rest of the Kukupful yet? Yeah, his average uh, draft pick in the Kukupful was 7.1. Okay, so yeah, so that sounds about right. Just such a good player. I remember when he broke into the league 
earlier in the decade. It was like a, a sort of a cup of coffee where he came up, scored a few goals, went away, and he played 100 games over two seasons, scored 25 goals in that time, but was playing less than 14 minutes a game. Finally, as a 20-year-old, his third season as a pro, he was bumped up to 18 minutes a night, 34 goals then, then 35, then 38 goals in 66 games last year. Right now, he is already up to 28 goals in 39 games, which means he is pacing for 58 goals. Uh, His shooting percentage is a little high. Not quite sure if it's going to keep up, but he's also playing more minutes than ever before. And that top line in Boston is just like points are raining down on those three, uh, Marchand, Pasternak, and Bergeron. He's in a great place. And the most amazing part, he's only 23. You know, if he had a quicker start to his career, I might be like, okay, I wonder if he can uh, maybe catch Ovechkin by the end of his career, just with the scoring pace he's put up. Because last year, 38 goals in 66 games wasn't so far off from a 50-goal pace. Uh, But I think he's getting started just a little too late if he does even string together like four or five 50-goal seasons from here to really even get in the top 10 NHL scores of all time. But I think he's legit maybe that good. Yeah. Uh, I agree completely. Yeah, as you said, he's probably a bit late starting to, to get near catching Ovi, but I think he's probably the best of the rest in terms of goal scorers. We saw Line A look good for a couple of seasons. He's maybe dropped off a little bit. He's he's tends to pick up a few more assists now rather than goals. Um, but I'd be interested when I read out the number two and number one right wingers of the decade, I'd be interested to get your take on who you would rather have in, say, the Cucupful format for the rest of the season. So if I can move on, I might name the two of them together. So number two is Nikita Kucherov of the Tampa Bay Lightning. 5.46 fantasy points per game he's over a point a game uh, at 498 points in 479 games that's more than enough of a sample size for you to know that this guy is legitimately worth his point a game he has a 14.6 percent shooting percentage which is right up there with Pasternak who was 14.8 and Kucherov uh, was the 2018-2019 Hart and Art Ross trophy winner uh, with 128 points last season he hasn't had the same impact I would say this season I'd probably be disappointed if I drafted him in the top two or three um, but I mean long term if you're looking at keeper leagues he's he's gold then maybe just move on to number one uh, Patrick Kane of the Chicago Blackhawks obviously this guy has won three Stanley Cups this this wasn't included in the, in the metrics for deciding this but you can't overlook the fact that he won three Stanley Cups in six years including a Conn Smythe in 2013 he's won an Art Ross Ted Lindsay Hart Trophy in 2016 um, he 5.78 fantasy points per game is his total he leads the league in points this decade uh, amongst all positions so 752 points in 695 games leads the league in even strength points in the same time frame with 526 even strength points so when somebody can score that many points at even strength you know that they're they're worth their weight in gold and yeah so i'd be interested to know between pasternak kucherov and kane in a in a one one season format a cupful format who you would prefer to own <sighs> that's really tough kucherov like it's hard because kucherov 
has just been disappointing by Kucherov standards, right? And Elon was talking about this on the most recent Short Shifts episode that he guest hosted with Lewis, how, you know, Kucherov is still over a point per game pace. He's just not on a 128 point pace that he was able to manage last year that looked sustainable enough for us to think he could approach it. And I think Patrick Kane, as being the number one player on this list, is also sort of not suffered the same uh, sort of... uh, image but you know when you come out and you score 72 points as a rookie then 70 points and 88 points everyone's just like okay like this this is what this guy does it's hard to impress people anymore whereas david pasternak is sort of on the other end of that where he's just starting it's like whoa like he keeps moving the needle when kane and kucherov never were really guys who kept moving the needle they sort of i mean kucherov of course he broke out with the triplets and then was up to 85 points by the time he was 23 that was four seasons ago now then 100 points the year after and then once you fall off of that high watermark you set for yourself. It's hard to keep impressing. So if you were to ask me right now who the hottest fantasy asset is, I'd probably see David Pasternak just because there's like a new buzz around him. And it's not like Kucherov or Kane where you're either like, well, they've done it before or like, oh, this isn't their best season ever, which is just a really hard mark to match. I think I would probably lean Patrick Kane if I could choose one of the three. I think he's just the most reliable and it seems as though his numbers are also the steadiest, like under the hood, compared to Kucherov and Pasternak. They're the ones that I can count on uh, holding up the rest of the season. And like he's got like the best totals, pretty much, for the full season, too, amongst the group. That's my answer. Where do you fall on it? Um, well, actually, that's really interesting, because uh, if I could maybe give a plug for Ryan McLaughlin and his redo league, can I get a redo cigar league? Um, it'll be interesting to see how those three are ranked in terms of right wing. Uh Personally, I drafted Pasternak this year and I'm really, really happy with him. So I think probably that bias would swing me towards him. Um, I mean, you can't really go wrong with any of the three, but uh, over the over the course of the last 10 years, Patrick Kane would be the number one. But in, in a one season or rest of season league, I'd probably be looking at Pasternak. Honorable mentions in right wing. Run through them real quick, Marcus. Yeah, um, so... The first one, I guess, is probably somebody who who left the league around the midpoint of the decade, Martin San Louis. Um, then we have Patrick Laine, Phil Kessel. Um, Kessel just doesn't get injured, produces up until this season, produces year in, year out. Uh, Radulov, Perry, and that's Corey Perry, and Mitch Marner um, were the other honourable mentions there. So guys who were just a little bit off the list and will probably, a couple of them will probably be seen in the next decade's list. All right, so we still have our top five left wingers and our top five centers in the fantasy decade to go. How about you uh, You drop numbers, uh, our, our fifth, fourth, and third highest rated left wingers on me? Yeah, so at number five, it's Evander Kane. Um, he's averaging 5.21 fantasy points per game with 410 points in 616 games. He averages 7.35 hits per 60, which is one of his more valuable uh, attributes. Um, then at number four is a guy who kind of surprised me when I saw him when I saw his name come up. Um, not doubting that he's a great player, but I just didn't expect to see him so high. Uh, it's Max Pacioretty. Uh, he averages 5.24 fantasy points per game with just under 500 points in 644 games played. 
played with 257 goals and he has averaged 3.5 shots per game over the decade. And at number three then is somebody who's been in the news a lot over the last month uh, is Taylor Hall, who was recently traded from the New Jersey Devils to Arizona. Um, he averages 5.41 fantasy points per game with 538 points in 594 games, which works out at not, not too far shy of a point a game. He has 3.34 shots per game, and interestingly enough, he was the 2018 Hart Trophy winner, but he has played just five playoff games this decade, which is a really, really sad story for me. So let's hope that this year Taylor Hall can add a few more to his resume. Right now in Arizona, his team is leading the Pacific. So you've got that. They've got, they're actually tied with Vegas, but they have two games in hand. They're not so far up on anyone though like it's a real tight race pretty much in in all of the west both uh, in each division and then for wild card spots so they're not out of the woods yet but they do have the third best goal differential in the western conference st louis has plus 20 colorado plus 29 and then arizona at plus 13 so that's usually a pretty good way to tell if a team is really playoff worthy so at this point of the season, I'm excited that Taylor All has made his way out of New Jersey, who has absolutely no chance of getting into the playoffs, and into Arizona, who has a pretty good chance. A funny fact, this has nothing to do with Taylor Hall, but I'm looking at Arizona's record right now. At home, they're one game under 500, 8-9-1. On the road, they are eight games above 500. So I don't know what's uh, what's going on when they play at home, if they're getting the usual home ice advantage from the referees. But uh, we'll have to see if that's something that evens out or not. But Taylor Hall, what a player. And he also took a long time to gain some respectability from fantasy hockey players. Everybody's like, oh yeah, Taylor Hall was great from the start. But yeah, there were injury concerns at the start of his career. He missed time in his first two seasons. And then after the lockout shortened year, he was fine for a year and then he missed time again. It hasn't turned out to be a Band-Aid boy, right? Over the last few seasons, he's barely missed time at all. Uh, he's played at least 72 games since 2015-16 in each of his seasons. So, like, you don't need to be concerned about that side of things. And the scoring comes. He was sort of a secret in Edmonton where I think people had these really huge expectations for him that obviously he just wasn't going to be able to meet with the poor cast of characters around him and there was a year I think his 23 year old season right in the middle of the decade he had 38 points in 53 games which just was not really impressing anyone he followed that up with a 65 point full season total but there's no doubt now that this is a high quality top of the line left winger Taylor Hall absolutely deserves third on this list very interesting fourth and fifth in Max Pacioretty and Evander Kane if you ask people to name the top five left wings I'm not sure they'd name those guys but you look at their resumes over the decade Max Pacioretty has gotten there with his shots Evander Kane has gotten there with his shots and his hits and of course both skew towards goal scoring rather than assisting which gives them a leg up in Arca Cup full score scheme. So way to go, Kane and Pacioretty, for making the left wing list. Who do we have at number two, Marcus? At number two, if you had told me that you had set up the scoring of the Kukupful to benefit this guy, I would not have been surprised because he's not somebody who would jump off the page at you as being the number two left wing of the decade by any means. But in fantasy terms, he has been really, really valuable. So he averages 5.49 fantasy points per game. It's uh, Jamie Benn. 
And he has 700 games played this decade, which is fourth amongst left wingers. So consistency in starting games is, is huge for him. Uh, 625 points in 700 games, which is roughly around the same points per game tally as Taylor Hall. He is third in even strength points amongst left wings. He's third in shorthanded points, which gives him a little bump. Uh, a 13.4% shooting percentage, which is higher than any of the other players who I'm mentioning here in the top five left wings. And he has 5.3 hits per 60 and 2.26 blocks per 60, which are above average and very, very worthwhile in a cupful type format. We mentioned how Kane did it with his hits. And Pacioretty did it with his shots. Jamie Ben did it with both of those things and with general better scoring than either of those guys, right? Neither of those guys ever hit the heights that Jamie Ben has been like over a sustained period of time. Uh, ben, of course, had that great middle of the decade where he had 80 points, 90 points, uh, at least 70 points for stretch of five years. And then, of course, it's amazing that Jamie Ben has held on to his standings as number two on this list with the miserable year and a half he's currently had over the last, uh, let's see, 115 games or so. He has just 70 points. It's a 50 point pace. I just did the math. So that's really Really sad that we're seeing a former 35-40 goal scorer uh, pacing for fewer than 20 this year. So if you were to extend the decade a year or two, I wonder how far off this list he would fall. Uh, I'm still hoping he can bounce back, but it's not looking like the conditions are right for that in Dallas for him. Just one point in his last, oh, I'm counting here, five games. But you go back. I mean, you could just go back his whole season. But he has just four points in his last 15, and that followed a string where he had a four-game point streak, and there was hope. There's not hope at the moment. Three goals and one assist in his last 15 games. Only 38 shots, so like only a couple shots a game. The hits are still coming, though, so uh, if you have to hang on to him because you have no other choice, I hope he's at least helping you win those categories this year. Yeah, and I guess his recent, you know, last season, season and a half, poor form, kind of just makes it all the more impressive that he's number two on this list because he hasn't produced for the entire decade you know he's had a slump and he's still ahead of the likes of Taylor Hall or Max Pacioretty which is really really impressive it just goes to show how good he was not necessarily how good he is now but he really was you know the number two left winger for the most part of the decade yeah good for him for being so good on the front end and the middle end that he can survive this sharp drop off at the tail end who is the only right winger i mean this is so obvious to beat jamie ben in points in the cup full this decade marcus yeah i mean i think everybody knows who it's going to be it's alex ovechkin um it's like if i can just maybe go back and tell you again the fantasy points per game for evander kane patcheretti so 5.21 for kane 5.24 for patcheretti 5.4 for hall 5.5 say for Jamie Ben. Alex Ovechkin is 6.93. Like he Ugh. is so far ahead of everybody else and not just left wingers, we're talking centers, D-men. He's just like he is the player of the decade in fantasy terms. There's there's nobody really. I mean there's a number 2 there but there's nobody close to where Ovechkin is at. Um just to give you some more of his numbers, he's just under a point per game at 0.99 so he's pretty much a point a game with 717 points in 724 games. He's number 1 in even strength goals, he's number 1 in power play goals, he's num- 
number one in game-winning goals. He's number one in first goals of the game. He's number one in overtime goals. He's number one in shots on goal. He's second in peripheral scoring amongst left wingers. So hits and blocks, pr- primarily hits, I guess. Um, he's tied second in empty net goals. He is seventh. This is an interesting stat. So he is seventh in hits in in the entire decade in the NHL behind wow. only the likes of Ryan Reeves, Matt Martin, Luke Shen, Milan Lucic, um, and Dustin Brown, Cal Clutterbuck. Um, so when you consider what this guy is producing in terms of goals, not so much assists, but goals, um, and what he's doing on the ice to achieve this by, you know, hitting people constantly, um, and shooting. I mean, if I can just mention his shooting as well. So he has 3,244 shots on goal, which is almost 800 more than the next highest, who is Tyler Sagan on 2,485. Um, and so Ovechkin's totals equate to an average of around 4.5 shots per game, which if, if you know your fantasy hockey and you know your, your hockey numbers, that's incredible. Unbelievable, right? And we've paid him enough lip service on the show, so I'm not going to go too deep into it again about how incredible and dominant Ovechkin has been in every possible way. But you look at what you mentioned, like he's a point and a half above the next best left winger of the decade. You know, the the gap between Patrick Kane and Kucherov on the right wing was like three-tenths of a point. Ovechkin's gap is five times the size. I'm going to spoil it. He is the best fantasy player of the decade. There's no centerman who had more fantasy points per game than Alex Ovechkin. He does it all, and he's, like, not just ahead of the rest. He's several standard deviations ahead of the rest. So Alex Ovechkin... Our fantasy player of the decade. Way to go. And I'll just give a few left-wing honourable mentions. Uh, Artemi Panarin, Zach Parise, Rick Nash, Philip Forsberg, Brad Marchand, uh, Jake Gensel and Gabriel Landeskog. I'd say of those, probably Marchand in the last few years is the one who would have been closest to those five. Um, But for the earlier part of the decade, um, he was not quite as high up. So he's probably the closest to those five, I would say. Right. Landeskog and Gensel... Both really good players, but you all like they sort of stick out to me as the guys who I still don't know yet what they can do alone. Whereas the other uh, top five and then the honorable mentions, Marchand, Forsberg, Nash, Parisi, Panarin, we know what they can do on their own. Gets a it's not totally fair to them because they've never really had a chance to strut their stuff, which isn't a bad thing. It's great for their fantasy value that they get paired up with some really otherworldly players. Gensel will find out soon enough, though. Sometime this decade, we'll know how much Gensel can do on his own. And that brings us to our final segment of the show today. We have our top five fantasy centermen of the decade. Let's do it the same way we did the last position, Mark, as you run down number five, four, and three, and then we'll slow it down for numbers two and number one. Yep, no problem. So Austin Matthews is number five. Uh, he obviously propelled himself into superstardom with a four-goal debut. Um, 5.94 fantasy points per game is his total. So when you consider how left wing went, um, that would put him at number two if he would have been a left wing. Um he has 243 points in 248 games, which is just under a point per game, 132 goals. He has a huge 15.6% shooting percentage. Everybody knows how good his release is. Um, he's averaging 3.5. 
3.4 shots per game. He's tied second in the league since he made his debut in 2016-2017, in spite of having played the fewest games of anybody in the top 15 in that particular list. He has the most even strength goals since making his debut, tied with Conor McDavid on 104, and he has three All-Stars in three seasons, as well as a Calder Trophy off the back of a 40-goal debut season. Uh, Then at number four, it's somebody who's a bit more established and towards the tail end of their career rather than the start at 6.09 fantasy points per game. It's Steven Stamkos. He is, in my opinion, and the stats will back me up on this, probably the most elite shooter in the league at 17.1% this decade. I mean, if you were to see 17.1% as a shooting percentage for, you know, the average player on a given week, you would probably say, oh, that's going to regress. That's what Stamkos has been shooting at for for 10 years let's say he has 655 points including 332 goals in 615 games he's second only to Ovechkin in power play goals with 119 he is third in game winning goals behind Marchand and Ovechkin with 52 he won the Rocket Richard in 2010 and 2012 and he is a six-time all-star this decade and then at number three, it's uh, Pittsburgh Penguin, Evgeny Malkin. Uh, not too far ahead of Stamkos, it has to be said. Uh, just 6.13 fantasy points per game compared to 6.09. So not a whole lot between those two. Uh, Malkin has 651 points in 565 games played, which is good for 1.15 points per game, which is third in the league this decade. Uh, Malkin, a bit like uh, Latang, has missed significant time through injury and hasn't played a full season in the NHL this decade. He's fifth in power play points this decade. He's not actually one th- misconception I think that people might have about Malkin. It's definitely one I had about him. Uh, he's not actually as big a hitter as people might think. He's just averaging 1.64 hits per 60. Uh, he is a bit of a combative player, but maybe not in the hits department. He has two Stanley Cups, a Hart Trophy in 2012 and Art Ross in 2012 and also the Ted Lindsay. So I'd say 20 12 is pretty much unanimously his his best uh his peak of his career and he has five all-star appearances as well i'm sort of just blanking on what more there is to say about any of these guys i feel like centermen probably get the spotlight more than any of the wingers like you know we're still like oh yeah david pasternak let's not forget about him as a first round talent or uh looking at the list of right wingers uh yo max pacioretty you know you could probably have always gotten him third round or so but these centermen go quickly right and if it weren't for value over replacement they'd go even quicker Matthew Stamkos Malkin there's not a whole lot to say I will say for Steven Stamkos that he's lucky uh, the decade started like that he got to be 19 when the decade started right because he he it's not fair to say he fizzled in his rookie season but remember there was all that hype with the Steen Stamkos campaign uh, and he ended up 46 points in 79 games which is a respectable rookie output but not what you'd hope for and then all of a sudden in the sophomore season 90 five points no problem he's just gonna double his point total as a sophomore and then keep it above a 90 point pace for the next five years like he has sort of fallen off a little bit in people's minds over the last few years but the numbers aren't really like just because he had a couple seasons where he was no longer a 90 point player but 98 points last season 86 points the season before on the same pace the year before that as a 26-year-old, but that season was shortened due to injury. This year, point-per-game pace as a 29-year-old. Steven Stamkos is still really, really good, and I feel like that's often forgotten, especially when he has that right-wing eligibility in a lot of leagues still also. Malkin, of course, somehow just seems to be getting better. 
Like, he's crazy. Always underappreciated because of missing time. Like Latang, and has already missed time this season. Like Latang, but he's 33 and not at all slowing down yet. He is on just a crazy, crazy run of a career where we're seeing essentially thir- 14 years now of uninterrupted production. Like Stamkos, I could point to one or two seasons and say, oh yeah, that was a down year. For Malkin, I don't know if I can do that. I can look back to, let's see, 2010-2011, when he was 24 years old, he had 37 points in 43 games, which is still good for full season 70-point pace. So that might have been the worst, and I'm just, uh, without remembering all the details of that first season of the decade for Malkin, he missed almost 40 games, so I wonder if injury had something to do with that. It was his lowest shooting percentage season of his career. So, like, this is a guy who just put pedal to the metal from his first season in the league as a 20-year-old. He had 85 points in 78 games and has never stopped. Relentless. And some people see him as a second-line center in Pittsburgh, where in reality, they have two top lines. Yeah, and that moves me on nicely to number two. So I said that Malkin and Stamkos were pretty close, not a whole lot to choose between them. There is a little bit of a jump up then to the number two centerman of the decade, and it's Sidney Crosby. Uh, 6.42 fantasy points per game with 727 points in 589 games which is 1.23 points per game he has more points than alexander ovechkin in 135 games fewer um he has 2.57 hits per 60 he's actually twice as big a hitter as malkin which surprised me uh 3.17 shots per game and then just to run through some of the things that he's won, he, he won back-to-back Stanley Cups with back-to-back Con Smythes. He won the Hart Trophy in 2014, the Art Ross in 2014, the Rocket Richard twice in 2010 and 2017, the Ted Lindsay in 2013-2014, and a couple of Olympic gold medals thrown in there with, a, as we mentioned earlier, a game-winning goal in the Olympic final in 2010 in Canada. Um, I mean, I could talk about this guy all night. He's, he's my favourite hockey player of all time. Uh, yeah, where do, where do you start with Sidney Grosby? He's just done it all. I mean, I think I just said it about Malkin, but you just flip it a little, like you, you ratchet up a couple gears. Or maybe not a couple, that's, that's probably still too much, because Malkin, I think, is still underappreciated for all that he's done in Pittsburgh. Especially Malkin hits too, right? We forgot to mention that. But Sidney Crosby, just unstoppable, right? He <laughs> came into the league the year after a lockout, 18 years old, 100 points, no big deal. The next season, 120 points, although this is before the start of the decade even. So like he put some of he put his best point total of his career up as a 19-year-old before this decade started in which he ranked the second best fantasy centerman 3 years before this decade even started. So that just shows just how long and lasting Sid's production has been. I reference this every so often, but back when we started the show, one of the first and most difficult questions we got was how many more years, like how long do you think Sidney Crosby can stay productive for? And this was probably uh, around 2013, 14, when he was 26 or 27. And I think someone was trying to weigh out his keeper value. And our take at the time, we looked at whatever numbers were available and we said, ah, you know, into his like 32, 33 year old season is how long we can vouch for him for like how we, how long we think we feel we can vouch for him. And then we'll have to see how he's been doing at that point. Now we're there. He's in his age 32 season, 100 points last season, point per game so far this year. I mean, 100, 120 points, maybe uh, less in reach than in past seasons for Crosby. But he can still easily be a point-per-game player. Like, it still feels like a, a lock 
that he'll be able to do that. He's just exciting every time he touches the puck. I don't know. Like, these are the sorts of players where you want to talk more about what they look like as a real-life player because of just how magical they are with the puck and the stories behind each of these numbers. So uh, Sidney Crosby, of course, deserving for this decade. And I honestly wonder where he's going to rank in the next decade amongst the fantasy centermen. You think he's got a chance to be top 10? Yeah, I'd love to think so. I mean, there was a time probably... Uh, when when was it? Uh, he was picking up a couple of concussions. There was a, a real concern that he probably wasn't going to maybe even come back, never mind have a full career. Um, the guy has worked through some serious, serious injuries, um, particularly head injuries, um, to come back and back and back. And I remember one particular game, just one anecdote. I think it was his first game back after one of his major concussions uh, timeouts. He, I think he had four points in his first game back at home possibly against the Islanders. He just, every time he goes down, he seems to come back stronger. And there are, like we talked about Ovechkin drinking, you know, Dr. Pepper or whatever it is on the bench. Crosby is the exact opposite of that. And looks after himself so well. Now, I'm not doubting Ovechkin's ability to continue, but if anybody can play until they're 40, it will be Sidney Crosby, as long as he can stay healthy and free of injury. Right. You look at the decade Crosby's had, and you wonder if it's about to be had by our number one ranking fantasy centerman of the decade. I feel like, Marcus, you could talk about Crosby all day, so I I, I feel bad moving along the conversation, but we got to talk about our number one, who will be of no surprise to anyone. Yeah, so he's not only exciting to watch on the ice, but he's exciting to have as part of your fantasy team. It's Connor McDavid of the Edmonton Oilers. He averages 6.51 fantasy points per game, which puts him between Crosby and Ovechkin, which is not a bad place to be in terms of fantasy anyway. Um, 431 points in his first 325 NHL games, which is worth about 4 points every 3 games, or 1.33 points per game. 15% shooting percent three straight 100 point seasons back-to-back art ross trophies four all-stars in four seasons one heart trophy two ted Lindsay's, um and i suppose a little bit of a quirk about mcdavid just like uh sydney crosby he actually didn't win the calder trophy and yeah i don't know what you can say about the guy he i mean hopefully hopefully edmonton will be able to put together a decent uh roster around him they're doing well with dry at the moment but uh if they can get a bit more support and a couple of extra lines, that team could be a contender in the next decade. And you would hope so because McDavid deserves it. His talent should be in the playoffs every season. Um, it hasn't been that way so far, but here's hoping. It's wild that McDavid didn't win the Calder in his rookie season. Does anybody? I'll give everyone a moment to guess who did. And then I'll I'll spoil it. The Calder winner in McDavid's rookie season was Artemi Panarin, who picked up a, a ton, 88 first place votes out of, uh, it looks like about 130 possible. And obviously, McDavid only played 45 games. So that was probably the deciding factor. He had 48 points in them. I feel like that's not fair. Robbed of the Calder by injury. And then Crosby finished second to Alex Ovechkin in Calder trophy voting. And it was near unanimous, even though Ovechkin had just four more points than Crosby and was two years older. Ovechkin got 124 first place votes to Crosby's four first place votes. And uh, also a rookie in the same season. I'm realizing this for the first time. Henrik Lundqvist 
was the only other Calder candidate to receive a first place vote in the year that Ovechkin won it and Crosby was the runner up. Dion Phaneuf sandwiched between those stars and Lundqvist, the goalie. That's a weird quirk of, I suppose, the lockout having occurred the season beforehand and maybe pushing a couple of players back, their rookie seasons back. So uh, I guess when there is a lockout, it, it kind of condenses a lot of rookies into one season. So it makes it that little bit more competitive. And um, I think I think I, I remember hearing that Crosby was the first or maybe the only rookie to have 100 points and 100 penalty minutes in his uh, in his rookie season. And and yet the the hockey writers did not just hand him the call. I mean, it should have at least been closer, right? I guess mm. if, if you score fifty goals like Ovi did as a rookie, it's almost it, it's hard not to. Especially when you know, I think that's one thing hockey writers love the most is fifty goals. If he had forty nine goals, I half wonder if the Calder <laughs> belongs to Sidney Crosby. Yeah. So Connor McDavid, like Elon says on the show, when I want to bring up some really high performing players who are always high performing, it's like what more is there to say about these guys. And uh, the lovely thing about McDavid is he's just starting his career, right? We've only seen, this is his fifth season in the league. We're just seeing the start. He's 23 years old this season. Skaters generally, the accepted knowledge of when skaters hit their prime is somewhere between 22 and 26 years old. So we're seeing Connor McDavid in the prime of his career and just at the front end of that prime too. And if we've learned anything from watching the likes of Crosby and Malkin and Stamkos over the years is that the best still could be yet to come. Elite centermen and elite wingers, elite players find a way to stretch their prime and even throw in a few seasons that improve upon it after it's passed. So I can't wait to f- continue watching the trajectory of Connor McDavid's career into the next decade. Honestly, Marcus, am I wrong to say he's a lock to be the best fantasy player of the next decade? I think you're right. Yeah, I think he, in 10 years time, we sit down and do this again, he will be the person we are talking about. Um, all I hope for McDavid is that he doesn't end up in a similar situation to where Taylor Hall is now. And he's, you know, coming towards the end of his 20s and hasn't played more than five playoff games because Edmonton really need to sort the team out around him. He will do the work. You know, he will produce but whether everybody else will produce around him and get him to a situation where he can start to win team awards and team trophies. Um, that's my biggest concern for McDavid. I, I don't see him leaving Edmonton at any stage, but they really want to, uh, to build a team around him like, like Pittsburgh did. And Pittsburgh were blessed with, uh, with the likes of Fleury and Malkin to, to partner up with Crosby and a whole, whole host of other stars as well. Um, but Edmonton need to start doing something similar with McDavid. Well, the good news is that somehow Connor McDavid already has almost triple the number of playoff games played. He got 13 postseason games in back in 2016-17, so his sophomore year, when the Oilers beat the Sharks in the first round in six, and then lost to the Ducks in the second round in seven games. And this actually, this like was only a few years ago, but it's like, did this really happen? Did the Oilers go to the second round of the playoffs? This was, uh, who was their goalie? Kim Talbot was having a really good season. So that was a piece of it. But like, you look at their top scores that season, it was the McDavid Dreisaitl Eberle show. And then they plus Kim Talbot dragged the team uh, to get into the playoffs and past the first round. So uh, it looks like that will be their task again this year, except Nugent Hopkins in place of Eberle. And uh, and Clefbaum stepping up a little. Oh, and let's not, of course, forget James Neal, who is a, a key cog in that Oilers machine this year. So good luck to McDavid for adding the game's played totals 
to his playoff resume, it would be a fun thing to predict who plays more between McDavid and Hall over the next, say, five or ten years. Although where Hall goes next is going to be a big part of that puzzle. And whether McDavid, like, tries to find a way out of Edmonton will also be a piece of that puzzle. Sorry, Oilers fans, but it's a storyline that the rest of us are definitely watching. But regardless of his playoff output, he is absolutely the fantasy sentiment of the decade who just missed the list marcus yeah so i'll just give a few names um i don't want people to start coming at me saying oh this guy should have been on there so jack eichel um obviously in a similar situation to mcdavid where he's only been playing for the tail end of the decade um john Tavares has been a solid uh fantasy own for the entire decade more or less um bar the controversy of him moving to toronto i think he's he's had a very successful decade um, then Nathan McKinnon, uh, Tyler Sagan, Ryan Getzlaff and Claude Giroux uh, were the others who I had mentioned as honourable mentions. Okay, and that wraps up our top fantasy teams of the decade, Marcus. Uh, you've been a fantastic navigator through the last 10 years of hockey and fantasy hockey. It's exciting to to think about what could happen in the next 10 years in hockey in general and in fantasy hockey. I mean, if you look back to what fantasy hockey probably looked like 10 years ago, I can't really remember myself, but I'd say it was a lot more primitive than what it is now. And who knows where it'll be in 10 years time and, you know, what developments will be, what will Yahoo release next? You know, we have advanced stats now. We have <laughs> uh, match-up rankings and weird things like that that we don't really need, but maybe there are... Uh, other avenues for them to explore and you know who yeah. knows where we'd be in 10 years yeah i mean you the sad truth of it is that you look at where fantasy football is today and in five years we'll be there for fantasy hockey right like all the features show up in football and baseball first and trickle their way down to basketball and hockey hopefully fantasy hockey gets a little more of a spotlight and i think that uh that puts a bow on things so uh, marcus thank you so much for all the research you did to prepare for this. If anyone listening has their own moments of the decade in fantasy hockey or players of the decade, maybe it's like a less uh, analytical angle and more an emotional angle. Like who, what players did you always find on your roster? Did you always look to, for example, for me, Wheeler, Ladd, and Little were those guys for me this decade who I could always pick out and enjoy. Who were they for you? Who always landed on your roster? Who did you always appreciate having? Who scored for you points in big moments? Please feel free to tweet at us at Keeping Carlson to let us know and uh, be very curious to see. And maybe it'll be some good discussion fodder for a future show or patron cast or just uh, we'll definitely give it a like because we're always interested in people's fantasy experiences. Uh, Marcus, tell us about Stat Attack for a moment before we say goodbye. Yeah, so Stat Attack has been a really exciting um, development this season. So Stat Attack started off as a basically a spreadsheet on a Facebook post every week. Uh, then it evolved into a PDF at the start of the season until um, yourself, Brian, and Elan invited me to host a, a podcast, basically running through the stats of the week and deep diving into pr- one particular aspect of either the cookupful or hockey or fantasy hockey. There's a, there's a free reign there for me to basically look into whatever I want and report back on my findings. Um, I also interview one of the members of the Cupful um, each week. So far, it's been really, really cool. Interesting hearing people's different takes on fantasy hockey, different strategies, you know, different memories. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really nice community and it's been a very, very enjoyable journey so far and long may it continue. I'm really, really looking forward to 2020. 
And again, you guys can all listen to Marcus uh, every week on the Stat Attack at keepingcarlson.com slash Stat Attack or just search Stat Kukupful, K-K-U-P-F-L, Stat Attack, or there's probably going to be a link to it in the show notes for this episode too. Uh, it's a really fantastic show. Even if you don't participate in the Kukupful, if you're curious about what it's like or just like are really into fantasy hockey as you might be as a listener of this entire show bonus show and of our podcast we hope you'll check it out marcus works really hard it's a fantastic show and with that i think we're ready to sign off so let's cue that outro music i'd love very much to thank you marcus one more time uh for being here with us Stay tuned this week. We're going to have another episode of Short Shifts coming up before too long. And then Elon and I will be back for our regular Sunday mega shows uh, in the new year. So that'll be our next episode on January 5th. Until then, we hope everyone's had a really wonderful holiday time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. Thank you for following us on Twitter. Thank you for writing us a five-star review on iTunes. We wish you a very happy new year and for the last time this decade, but something you should still do for the next next decade, keep on keeping Carl son.